This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the Damn It Feels Good to Be a Shirtser sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to emphasize at time of recording, you know, all we know is that Max Scherzer is being courted by the New York Mets, right? People are he, saying deal done now in the oh, past people saying 20 deal minutes done. or right. so. Yeah. So, all right. So, what we kind of know, what, you know, what's out there is that if 40 plus million, so we're going to, you know, end up somewhere around there. Steve Cohen opening the pocketbook for, uh, for Max Scherzer and, DeGrom and Scherzer, right? Number one, two tandem. That's pretty darn good. Not too bad. Nobody gets hurt. Yeah, that's pretty good. I guess Stevie wants to win, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think if you were a Mets fan who was thrilled about Steve Cohen taking over, this is exactly the kind of thing you were excited about. I I won't say this deal would never have happened under the Wilpon regime, but but this is the kind of thing that I think Mets fans really wanted to happen and were frustrating wasn't happening enough. A really big, splashy, grade A, top-tier signing. And Scott, three years, $130 million, $43.3 million average annual value on this contract, by far the most expensive single year average annual value deal in Major League Baseball history. Now, I know Max Scherzer's really good, <laughs> but, and he's been one of the best for the last, what, five, 10 years, whatever, whatever it's been. Uh Boy, uh, I, I guess if if you're Steve Cohen, does the, the money doesn't really matter? You know, you can spend what you want. He wants to win. That's clearly what we've seen here. He he wants to win, and that comes after criticizing an agent of another player. He was going after. Oh, he, you know, this wasn't handled the proper way. And uh, boy, if if you're Scherzer, you you think. It, what was you think maybe was was Cohen a stalking horse? But no, like he's he's. If it's true, he's coming to New York and boy, again, pairing him with Jacob deGrom, you put fannies in the seats, best one-two combo in all of baseball. But what I find interesting, Eben, is not even, you know, we get who, what, when, where, why, when you want to tell a full story. It, this one is not the what or even the how much, it's the when. Uh, I find this to be uh, the most interesting part of this because the criticism from the players union aimed at some baseball teams is that they're not spending money. Uh, well, here's one deep pocket, big market, big revenue team that did. And it's not the only one as we approach the deadline or the expiration of a labor contract that I think this is fair to say 
will wind up in some sort of work stoppage. I don't know if we'll lose games, but we'll wind up in some sort of lockout and work stoppage. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Scott. I wrote down some of the deals we've seen in the past 24, 48 hours here. Kevin Gossman signed a $110 million deal. Byron Buxton, a $100 million deal. Wander Franco, a $180 million deal. It does certainly seem as though right now we're, we're two days out from what everyone assumes is going to be that lockout. Uh, baseball teams seem to kind of be doing in, in this little window the thing that players have been accusing them of not doing for so long. I think there's a few logical explanations to that. One, if this lockout does happen, all the free agency gets put on pause. I can certainly understand teams wanting to have a better idea of what the roster looks like now, as opposed to having to wait until this deal gets done. And that could be February, March, April, May. It could even be later than that. There seems to be, there's more, there's more interest for teams. I think now to get these deals done before the lockout, because you can't do any deals during the lockout. Um, Two other things here that I wrote down one, Mike McCann wrote for it on, on Sportico. Really interesting. Depending on when this this Biden uh, build back better, when, when the new tax plan kicks in, there could be some tax implications for, for, for players who have to pay more on their signing bonus if they do that deal next year, depending on when that deal gets signed versus when they do it now. So uh, there may be some implications there. Uh, and then lastly, what's going on you know, right now on, on the labor talks? Again, this is the kind of deal that Major League Baseball players are saying is happening less and less, particularly at the end of their career. Max Scherzer is 37 years old. Uh, so much of the conversation around Major League Baseball's changing salaries has, has highlighted the fact that when players reach the end of their careers, they're not getting the, the big ticket uh, deals that they used to get five or 10 years ago. Well, Max Scherzer is at the end of his career, and this is a three-year deal that's more expensive than any deal in baseball history. Yeah, I'm with you. Like One of the top issues we've seen is that the union says that younger players need to get paid. As the analytics become more important, you're uncovering younger players who deliver more value and they want to find a way for those younger players to get paid. But then if you want the security, you you got to give up a little something, right? So I think that's what we're seeing with some of these deals like, you know, Byron Buxton, you you mentioned him. While a hundred million bucks over seven years is a lot of money, I would think a player of that caliber in his prime, age 27, and a free agent would get a lot more money. But the, it's not just the the big market, big revenue teams like the Mets we're seeing. You know, you have the Marlins locking up some players, the Twins and Buxton, who, by the way, and I, I would say if uh, top five favorite players of one um, focus group of one, Jackson Soshnick. There you go. Uh, because of MLB Speed. the show. He mm. loves Byron Buxton. Like he run, I, he calls him Daddy Buxton. I don't know if this is a thing. Like the kids call like the players <laughs> they like the best Daddy. So every time like he's screaming around the house, Daddy Buxton did it again. So you know, <laughs> just on that alone, the fact that he's so popular with the young kids, I will tell you, pay the man. He knows. But again, the Twins, the Marlins. You mentioned Wanda Franco. That's the Rays. Like you know, you know, these are not high revenue teams. And if the Rays thinks it's a darn good idea to give Wander Franco that kind of money. Uh, can you imagine what he'd be worth in four or five years if you you know project what his production would be like? Part of me does wonder if come next week as, as lawyers for the union and, and the league sit down to talk about some of these things, if the league doesn't say, well, what do you mean we're not spending? Look, just a week ago, the, the Rays spent $180 million on a, on a young prospect and the Twins gave $100 million to, to Daddy Buxton. I do wonder if this will come up Pretty quickly, Scott, we are, again, we're recording this on Monday at, at midnight on Wednesday. 
the current labor agreement ends, if there's not a deal, and it certainly seems like there's not there going to be. Will, I, I, will, I will go <laughs> on record. There will be there will, no there deal. There will be no deal. Lockout likely starts on Thursday. Uh, d- we've been pretty clear on that on this show. Anything in the past week or so changed your mind on, on what you're thinking in terms of how big a deal this this may be and, and how long it could take for, for an agreement to be reached? No, nothing has changed my, yeah, my I, mind. Yeah, I agree it, there. I, I have covered so many of these labor stoppages in all sports, but particularly focused in years past on the NBA. And, you know, David Stern approached negotiations this way. He didn't look to get everything in one fell swoop. He, If he wanted a salary cap or a luxury tax, or what he would do is he would just get the concept inserted into the agreement. Even if in dollars and cents changing hands, it didn't mean a whole lot. But you had to get the concept or at least the mechanics of what you wanted inserted into a deal. And then down the line, the next negotiation, you tighten that screw. And then the next one, you tighten that screw. And you wonder, is there an event? Has there been any big event that would force owners or players to coalesce and galvanize? You're going to hear that word galvanize you know, a, a lot during negotiations. And in the NBA years ago, it was the Kevin Garnett contract. You know, where I think he he eclipsed like 30 million bucks for a single season. And the owners went bonkers. They were like, no way, we've got to do something. And the union wound up agreeing to a pay limit on the high-end people. Like they they understood, and like Kobe Bryant, of course, understood that he wasn't going to get paid what his fair value was. And they, they were going to sacrifice those few high, high-end players so that the money could trickle down. And at the time, I don't remember who it was, but I do clearly remember somebody saying that the owners are going to regret this. And here was the reason why. Because now that you've installed a maximum salary between ego and need of individual franchises, rather than spread it out to everybody, say, well, what's going to happen? And this is what did wind up happening, is that every best player or every fan favorite, whatever it might be on each individual team, is going to say, pay me the max. I want a max deal. And that's it. That played out. Yes, it pulled more people up then it limited. So, and the distribution of dollars then would become a problem because every single, like, pick a team, doesn't even have to be a playoff team, but the best player, the most popular player on any particular team, when that guy became a free agent, he and the agent said, I want the max. It was just an easy thing to say. I'm, I'm the best player here. Uh, you want to build around me, whatever, then you got to pay me the max. So be careful what, what you wish for because sometimes you actually get it. So those are the clouds that are looming over baseball, but at least right now and for the next 24 hours, it's it's a darn good time. It seems to be an elite baseball player. It also, Scott, is a darn good time to be an elite college football coach. We have seen in the past uh, in the past few weeks uh, a near record number of top tier college football coach openings happening and a lot of big ticket deals. The, the most recent Lincoln Riley, the young coach at, at Oklahoma, moving over to USC. We don't have the numbers on that deal yet, but I assume he's going to be one of the highest paid coaches in college football. Mel Tucker at Michigan State, James Franklin at Penn State, both signed 10-year deals north of, of 80 and 90 million dollars, respectively. Uh, it seems as though we are entering, Scott, this new tier of deal and salary for elite college football coaches. The question I have for you, because there's also that database that we have, that we look at all of the dead money being paid to coaches. And I do chuckle every time when you look at like 
the highest paid state employee that map across America, almost every state, it's a basketball coach or a football coach. So you throw the dead money on top of that. You throw in the purpose of the universities. Where's the money coming from, Eben? Are, is this one of those almost like a bond where you say, well, revenue from the games and, and concessions? And, or are universities starting to look outside to boosters to get that guy who can deliver. I don't know that, you know, you know me, I don't follow the college football too closely. Of course, I know these coaches' names, but I did see already a top recruit for Oklahoma said Lincoln Riley going to USC changes everything. Like now you're going to see if this person's going to go and play for USC. Yeah, it's it's a number it's more than one recruit leaving uh Oklahoma decommitting uh the the, the quarterback at the start of the year Spencer Rattler. He said he's going to enter the transfer portal. Uh they lost Oklahoma State this past weekend. It's been a rough 48 hours for Oklahoma. But to answer your question, Scott, I think it's both. I think the there were certainly a, a large contingent of Michigan State boosters who paid up to help keep Mel Tucker around. He had a great start to the year uh, and then things kind of went sour. Uh, but also, yeah, schools are looking at future revenue streams. There's, there's a few conferences that have big new media deals that are going to kick in soon, SEC included, that certainly make them feel pretty confident, I think, about the future. And then kind of more broadly, there's more of a sense than there ever has been in college football right now that we are schisming the, the haves and the have-nots. And, and I say that knowing full well that there is not a ton of parity right now in college football, but a lot of people in powerful positions around the sport feel very strongly that that gap is going to widen even more considerably in the next five years. And that happens as Oklahoma and Texas go to the SEC, as the NCAA gives more deferential treatment and more oversight and more punishment and more rulemaking uh, jurisdiction to individual conferences, which everyone says is going to create even more of this power five or, or elite, you know, super conference than we have right now. Everyone seems to think that, that it is the now or never time for a lot of programs to kind of solidify their positioning at the top tier of college football, because if you're not at the top tier, you could very easily find yourself in, in a gap that you cannot bridge back up to that tier. I love that you know the quarterback's name. Like I could not have you give me a thousand guesses. Like who's the choir? I have no <laughs> idea. He's got a great name, Spencer Rattler. Yes, yeah, Spencer Rattler. That's great. I mean, wasn't that like a? It wasn't the Rattlers. Wasn't that a an Arena Football League team name? Like Rattler, Rattler to the Rattlers or the something? Uh, I, I think it was the what was the Charlie Eversall one? I think it was that league. Oh, okay. The AFL. Wow, this is embarrassing. Yeah, Tom Dungeon <laughs> said I'm going to give you a certain amount, yeah, but it wasn't exactly. all of it. Right? Yeah, it was, was that it? one. And I the something of American the football, the Association yeah, of American yeah. Football, the something of American football. Yeah, yes, I, AAF. Yeah, that you got it. Nice. Thank you. There, there <laughs> we go. And now we've got more coming. By the way, we haven't really ever talked about the USFL coming back and the XFL coming back. Yeah. We know what we should do that in in one of these shows. We should talk about spring football and the viability of it and how people plan to make it work. That'd be fun. But you know the quarterback's name, like. I'd rather discuss somebody like Matt Ishbia, who you know will walk on at Michigan State. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, does the athletic director, university president, do they pick up the phone and say, "Well, Matt, um, you know, uh, Sparty here needs a little more help. I know you've donated a lot, but we'd like to keep our football coach, and it's going to take what was it, eighty, ninety million dollars to keep him. What do you think about a a check directly uh, made to the athletic department?" to uh to fund just a football coaching position they should have it you know the endowed matt ishbia i mean i know he's a basketball walk-on <laughs> but what the heck throw it around the football team too they need a little love 
Yeah, I don't know exactly the who makes the first call in that scenario, but that is exactly the setup that we have on campuses all over. And that's been happening for years. Um, but yeah, what you mentioned buyouts. It's often that that a college will fire a coach and the buyout is being funded by a, a lot of boosters, many of whom are calling the AD on a weekly basis, telling them they need to get a new coach anyway. Uh, so a, a lot of these decisions, uh, both the decision and the the financial part of the decision ends up being made by boosters that, that can make, you know, that they are an extremely influential group of people, depending on what campus you're on. And yes, the, the, the money talks in a lot of ways. I mean, you mentioned the buyout, Scott. Just want to mention this because I think this is so indicative of where college sports and college football is right now. Virginia Tech fired Justin Fuente in the middle of November. His contract had a $10 million buyout. If they had waited until the end of the year, until middle of December, the buyout would have been $7.5 million. But they felt it was so important to open that position up and start looking for new coaches four weeks earlier than that, that they were willing to eat a much bigger buyout to do it. And that, to me, just, just is a perfect encapsulation of where things are right now. You want a perfect encap- encapsulation of where things are with us? You mean to tell me Frank Beamer is not the coach at, <laughs> at Virginia Tech and Michael Vick is not the quarterback? Is that what you were insinuating right now? <laughs> Michael Vick, definitely not the quarterback. Frank Beamer, also definitely not the coach. Yeah, well, this is. The, I am about to unload all of my Virginia Tech football knowledge. Okay, besides knowing the Hokies. Besides you ready for this? Two, yeah. yeah, yeah and, and knowing that Frank Beamer and Michael Vick, here it is. This is all of it. Okay. Very good back then. Back in the day, very good special teams. Oh, interesting. And very lunch pail defense, Bud Foster. That was the, uh, that, that okay. was the, under Frank Beamer was a, a big thing. But t- to this point, exactly. The, the, what every school wants is, is for you to know the coach because he's been there forever and he's had a lot of success, right? Virginia Tech wants to find the next Frank Beamer who can be there for a decade plus, who even people that tangentially follow college football know very well. They know his calling card, if it's special teams, if it's defense, whatever it is. Um, and schools are increasingly looking one, to find that person, and two, when they think they've found it, like Michigan State seems to do with Mel Tucker or like Penn State seems to do with James Franklin, they are now willing to pay record amounts. You know, we, we never saw coaches making $10 million a year until a couple of years ago, and now there's going to be a chunk of them next year, and, and, and that's the, the, the whole market has shifted upwards. We better break the story when it happens that whether it's Bain Capital or Redbird Capital or BlackRock or KKR – when somebody makes a serious move to privatize college football, the top 30, 40 schools, uh, just under the umbrella of a bunch of private equity firms, where it is really about wringing every dollar you can out of the enterprise. What a great story. I look forward to the day when there's four or five private equity firms running the sport of college football and everybody's a washing money. That's where we're headed. Am I right? I agree with that. I would argue that the SEC could very easily, even without the private equity backing, be heading in that direction anyway, right? The, the idea here would be concentrate some of the biggest brands in college football, have them just playing each other and, and yeah, forget about the rest. Yeah, but then you have to have the appearance of institutions of higher learning. Like if we can get rid of a pretense <laughs> of having to fill some sort of academic mandate and privatize this thing, then we got ourselves some college football. <laughs> yes. And yeah, that might be a hard sell for some presidents and some uh, some deans, but but for others, it might not. And, and I think you and I are in, a, in agreement that things are just going to move increasingly that way. I mean, the fully privatization might not happen for a while, but again, if the NCAA is going to let the SEC make its own rules, we could very easily be heading towards whatever that privatization, what that looks like in, in basic practice, just within the SEC rubric. 
I look forward to the statement signed by all the members of the Drake Group. And if you're not familiar <laughs> with what the Drake Group is, I will let you go to the Google Google Drake Group, and then you'll be in on the conversation. Anyway, but you know it is fully privatized, Evan. NFL, MLB, NBA, MLS, all the leagues, and our colleague Brendan Coffey with a great story today on the, the Fitch Ratings Agency, and really just a company, it's not a government agency, but Fitch took a look at sort of the credit worthiness of all the pro sports leagues and coming off one big gut punch of coronavirus. But I mean, is it a surprise? NFL A plus, league wide credit facilities A, NBA debt A minus, MLB debt A minus. I mean, you're talking about what are the risks of doing business with these entities? And it seems like the business of sport is pretty damn good right now. There was so much, you know, thought about what the pandemic was going to mean for franchises. Obviously, there was a lot of unknown about what the pandemic was going to mean countrywide and 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 for businesses in in, in all types. It certainly feels as though, you know, knock on wood, right now, uh, we are eighteen months after the start of the pandemic. Business seems to still be very good for the NFL, particularly. I would separate the NFL, I think, from from those others, but also a lot of the other U.S. leagues. The ticket sales took a big dip. Media, most of them fulfilled a large amount of their media requirements. Uh, the, the demand on the certainly on the TV side seems to be pretty strong right now. Ticketing, yes or no, in some ways, depending on who you ask. But in, in maybe the most important thing from what Finch, Fitch looks at, which is you know the your bonds and and your your ability to pay back your loans. Valuations are going are skyrocketing. It's something that we've written a ton about at Sportico. We've talked a lot about it on this show. And, and I think and inflation if, will probably only send them higher. And that's very possible. So if valuations are going up, I think it, it only makes sense that that your debt rating and your debt capacity or, or your ability to pay back that debt also goes up. Yeah, people are wondering what does it all mean. I mean, I mean, like if you if your house goes up in value. It's easier to go take out a mortgage or take out a loan because it's it's worth more. It's the same thing with these pro franchises. And by the way, I mean, I looked at like the total debt. I was surprised at the low numbers, right? NFL, 10 billion in debt, NBA, 7.6, MLB, 5 billion. That's nothing, especially when backed on the guaranteed revenue of the broadcast contracts. And then, of course, I mean, COVID related, I know, but if, if fans are in the stadiums, you know, it, you wonder why it's not a surprise, I should say. Why you know the agencies the agencies are all like oh well all right I get it they have enough revenue to pay back all this debt and that is both as you know Scott both both by design and also higher than normal I think yeah. both the NFL and the NBA if I'm correct on that in the past two years has raised, raised the debt ceiling yep. raised the debt ceiling for teams yep. so yep. you know not only is it is is it deliberately kept that low but that it is higher now than it than it would have been if you'd looked at those numbers uh, two or three years ago so all yeah right. you're, you're absolutely right. All right, let's take a look and we'll end with uh, Fenway Sports Group. Looks like they signed their purchase agreement of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, last night, we uh, we were first to the Twitter with that to let the world know. And looks like Ron Burkle and Mario Lemieux will stay on in the ownership group. Um, Mario will run the hockey ops. But I find it interesting, all right, that they're selling but staying in. Uh, you get a sense that Burkle understands there's still upside in pro sports. We value the team at like 840 or Kurt Bodenhausen, 840, 145 million bucks, something, something like that. But Fenway, with the, with the latest move, again, uh, Sam Kennedy, he preached it to anybody who would listen that they're a platform company. And they are, the, you know, 
when you're looking to sell, you get the before sale sign out there. What do you put out when you're looking to buy? Like, are they Zillow sending me emails? We want to buy your house. I know they stopped <laughs> doing that, right? But that would be the equivalent, right? Fenway is like sending out the emails. Like, we want to buy your team. We want to buy your network. We want to buy your whatever that is associated with sport because we are growing. Uh, they, they take iconic brands and they see how they can mesh them all together and see how they fit in one happy, profitable bunch. Yeah. And, and going back to Burkle and Lemieux for a second, Mario Hall of Famer played his entire career in, in Pittsburgh, obviously as someone who means a lot to, to Penguins fans. Uh, I totally understand the desire to keep him as part of the group. He seems like a, a valuable kind of ambassador uh, between the team and the players in a way. And then for for Burkle, I, I think is is also kind of true similarly as well. The, the, the Mario and Ron bought this team out of bankruptcy, I believe, in the in the 1990s. A lot of people feel as though if they had not done that and stepped up when they did, the, the team might not even be in Pittsburgh at all anymore. It's it's obviously worked out well in the, to the tune of three Stanley Cups in the past 15 years. Uh, but I, I definitely understand, and I'm sure this is part of the desire from Fenway Sports Group, is that, hey, th- these guys are mean a lot in the local community. They can be really good ambassadors as we are not Pittsburgh people at all uh, here sitting where, where we are in, in Boston or New York, wherever a lot of those Fenway executives are. Um, yeah, it seems like a logical decision if they wanted to stay in to to kind of keep them there as important kind of ambassadors between the two sides. What do you mean we're not Pittsburgh people? I have myself enjoyed a Primanti Brothers sandwich on more than one occasion. <laughs> I have also, as a masochist on more than one occasion, driven the six plus hours west on both 80 and 78 to see which I preferred. The answer is 80 to Pittsburgh for, uh, you know, uh, Jackson Soshnick to take on the junior penguins or penguins elite, I believe is the official name. And the last time we played them, you know, this is what I love about social media. Are those games in PPG paints arena? Uh, no, they're, they no, are they're, in actually, the, but they are in the Penguins practice facility. Okay, gotcha. Which is a wonderful facility. Like it isn't often <laughs> where we get to go and you can watch a game in like just a t-shirt or sweatshirt, but total climate control. The ice is perfect. That's they have nice. you know, more than one rink. Yeah, really, really nice. Um, yeah, anytime you play in the NHL practice facilities, you know, you, you know, you're in for a treat or the real games, you know, that that's nice too. Um, but Every time this is like kind of goes with social media, you see parents posting things on their kids. And if it's a, if you see a kid like a, at plate playing baseball, you know, it's going to be a big hit. If you see him like running a route, you know, they're going to score a touchdown or something really, really good. Well, uh, I'm not ashamed to tell you our last trip in Pittsburgh and the Penn's elite are darn good. You know, we're a good team too, but they were darn good. We, we beat them in the first game. Just so happened we had a rematch, I believe in the semifinals or if I don't remember finals, maybe whatever it was. Um, I think the final score was 7-3. I mean, I can go look it up on my phone. Neither, but they outshot us 43-18. Uh, to 18. <laughs> Like, we took a couple of stupid penalties. And they, I'm telling you, if, if you get a chance to go watch the, uh, the 2009 Penns Elite, go watch their power play because there's some NHL teams who can learn a thing or two from these boys. They run a wicked power play, and they kicked our butts solid. But, hey... There you go. Not always the perfect ending for your kid's sports team. I'm not ashamed. I, I, I share all of that, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that was one ugly day. Speaking of ugly, he is Eben Novi Williams <laughs> on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon, soon, soon become the hub of the Sportico Podcast Network.